Hi, my name is Nico Heller. Good morning and a good evening if you're uh, joining us uh, in Australia. Uh, my guest today is uh, Professor Chris Hammer. Chris was our very first uh, um, discussant on Reboot uh, 2030 um, last uh, October when we when we started a pilot uh, program uh, to see whether Reboot 2030 would have legs would be would be a possible uh, dialogue format uh, for a new channel. Uh, we've been expanding since we've had plenty of uh, discussions, great dialogues, conversations, and it is a great pleasure to have Chris back today um, at the end of our first full season of interviews and dialogues. Uh, Chris is a honorary associate professor um, at the School of uh, uh, Physics um, at the University of New South Wales in Australia. He was formerly the National Secretary of Scientists Against Nuclear Arms, also in Australia, and he's presently the uh, president of the Coalition for a World Security Community. Uh, Chris was talking about the Coalition for a World Security Community uh, last October during our first dialogue. We'll be revisiting this uh, briefly, just so that you can give us an update, and then we'll be looking at ways in which civil society might get more involved uh, in this process, in this development. Now, I see that Chris is already here, so I'll invite him in and see how he's doing. Okay. Uh -huh, he's joining, joining. Day is coming on. Okay, there he is. Chris, good evening. Okay, can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly well. It's a much more right. civilized time this time, isn't it? It is. So, um, <laughs> I apologize for missing out on the previous schedule, but there we go. Yep. Are you, I hope you're back to fully restored to good health. I am. I'm even better than I was. So, uh, oh. yes, I'm good. Oh, that's brilliant. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, Chris, I just gave a very brief introduction. You know, it's quite fitting because you and I, we had our first dialogue when we started Reboot uh, last October. And now we're having our second dialogue at the end of our first full season. So this really kind of, in a way, closes uh, sort, of a, uh, sort of a circle. And it's been, it's been an interesting journey. We've had great discussions and I'm really glad to have you back. Um, I mentioned that you are a honorary associate professor uh, still at the School of Physics in, at the University of New South Wales, that you have a, a background in campaigning for a peace and disarmament through the, uh, uh, the Scientists Against Nuclear Arms uh, Association in Australia, and that you're currently uh, leading the Coalition for a World Security Community. Um, let's return to that uh, last, uh, uh, the, the current work you do, the Coalition for World Security Community, uh, and just to give us an update, you, you talked about this uh, like during our first dialogue, but maybe you could very briefly in a few words say what it is, how it works, and what its purpose is, just so that our viewers kind of get a sense of what we're talking about. Okay, fine. So um, the idea is we're campaigning for a world security community of democratic nations, which would basically be an alliance of democracies, 
um, all for one, one for all, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all, etc. But um, with knobs on, if you like. So um, we'd also like to see it become a community following the European model. So following the model of um, um, yes, his name. Anyway, the, the founders of Europe in 1950. Yes, Chaminade. Um, Jean Monnet, that's the name. I, so I'm getting old, I'm afraid. Um, Jean Monnet, uh, Speer, uh, etc. Um, Spark, I'm sorry. Um, so the idea is it would not only be an alliance, but it would have um, extra arms. It would have um, a parliamentary assembly, which would be the nucleus of an eventual actual parliament. It would have a council. Um, it would have uh, the nucleus of a court. So a court to um, basically be the nucleus of a legal system. And um, it would, as far as possible, in, employ um, a system of qualified majority voting, like Europe does, so that um, no one country dominates, like the US, dominates discussions, but all have a voice in the community. So um, that's the basic idea. Um, so it, it would, the main purpose would be to assure the security of um, its members against the um, really alarming threats of autocracies at the moment. And secondly, um, it should form a very useful forum for making decisions on other um, common problems like climate change. Um, as uh, the European community did. And um, finally, it should form a stepping stone. So we're looking for it to be only the first stage in a, in a process of um, political unification, if you like, um, maybe some sort of eventual democratic world federation. Um, so uh, let yeah. me just let me just come in here for a second. So I'm picking out a few elements here with, which seem quite central to this idea. Uh, this is uh, the idea is to have a coalition of democratic nations. Um, so yes. the emphasis being on the democracy of this world coming together, as opposed to whoever wants to join the club. Um, so it is it is a much more specified, a much more, if you like, a value based coalition than, say, for example, even NATO. Uh, uh, is at present, um, or indeed, say, the United Nations uh, is at present. Um, now, this obviously raises questions about inclusivity and exclusivity, and, and where do you draw the line? What exactly is a democracy? I mean, is India still a democracy, or and so on and so forth? So there's these questions uh, that, that this raises, but of course, this is all part of the process, isn't it, to, to develop a kind of a consensus around who is in and who is out, and what we consider to be democracies, and at what point they kind of sort of tip into becoming uh, sort of autocracies. Um, now, the, the, so that's the one issue that kind of seems to be popping out is, is this question, uh, really a much more a global debate around what exactly do we mean by democracy and where do we draw the line? Um, so that's a, that's a very viable discussion that seems to be developing along this. The, the second part that keeps 
popping out is is security. Um, now this is obviously where it is both very similar to but also quite different from the European Union. It is similar in the sense that the European Union, the founding intent was very much of creating interdependency to prevent another world war and another Holocaust. For, for, uh, so, so the idea was if you create a very interdependent, integrated uh, Europe, then European nation states will find it much harder in future to fight each other. There, the, the, the condition, there was a kind of a strong emphasis on democracy as well, uh, very much so. But as we have seen with the expansion towards Eastern European uh, countries, and most recently now with Ukraine, um, there was also always the possibility of countries becoming more democratized in the process. So there was this kind of process. Now, where it fundamentally differs, the driver in the European Union, of course, was the economy. So it was, you know, it was kind of using economic integration as the first engine of integration, and it was built out from there, the single market, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, what you have in mind is not so much driven by economic concerns, although they do matter, but it seems more driven by security concerns. So security, um, defense against autocracy seems to be a far more, much more central in your proposal than it was, say, in the European one. And also Europe is very much concerned about itself. So it was about coming together to prevent that we fight each other, whereas here it's a kind of a, if you like, a common front against an external enemy. So there's a, there's another kind of fundamental distinction uh, with the EU. Maybe you can elaborate or say a little bit about these points. So the first was this, you know, what you try and draw the line with democracy and what is in and what is out. And the second one was, was whilst with Europe, this was about building internal alliances and internal peace and security, this would be very much almost the inverse. It would be building external security and defending against an external threat, i.e. autocracies such as China, such as Russia. Maybe you can elaborate on those two to sort of see where the differences in the similarities with the European Union and its founding ideas lie. Yes, well, certainly the um, central idea is trying to prevent war, get rid of war on the global stage. Um, so let me start with my motivation. So I'm basically a world federalist. I've always believed we're facing some huge global problems, um, nuclear weapons, um, climate change, um, war in general, as we've seen in Ukraine, um, dot, 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 there's lots more. Um, you know, we can only solve those if we work together, that's obvious. So um, basically that's what a world federation would be. We need a, some sort of global government to deal with these global problems. Now, um, but the second point is it has to be democratic because um, first of all, the established democracies wouldn't uh, accept anything less. Um, and secondly, you know, a third, maybe more than that, of the world's people instinctively reject any idea of global government because um, they think of 1984 or Brave New World or these um, uh, fictional uh, ideas of, you know, swastikas, jackboots, they see um, tyranny as being equal to world government. So we need a democracy and, you know, very well-established, very unchallengeable democracy at the global level before we're going to get any sort of global government. 
Um, right. Um, so that's my main motivation. Um, the present time seems particularly urgent because I see there's an alarming similarity to the period before World War II. Um, we're facing threats from the, the um, autocracies. Um, Russia's actually invaded Ukraine. China is promising to invade Taiwan in a very few years. Uh, Japan's promised to defend it. President Biden has promised to defend Taiwan. And that could easily lead to World War III. And that would be the most destructive, the most catastrophic war the world has ever seen. So we need to prevent that. And the way to do that is to um, unite all the major democracies around the globe, which would then dispose of um, half the world's GDP, two thirds of the world's military expenditure. Um, that should be enough to dissuade or um, deter your toxicities from any further adventures. And that, so that would be the, the major motivation. Um, yes, that, that's, that'll do for the time being. If that, oh, sorry, you asked me to define democracy. Well, I'm satisfied with, um, say, Freedom House, uh, the ratings of Freedom House, or the criteria of the European Union to some extent. I mean, Europe is coping with these problems ahead of us, so we follow the EU to some extent. But um, I guess our idea is we would have a category of full members who are fully free countries and associate members who were not fully free but promised to work towards that. Um, we'd copy the European Union, the principles of subsidiarity, solidarity, which means um, we would channel funds towards the more backward economically members, but um, say the associate members wouldn't qualify until they upgraded themselves to become full members. Anyway, that's a detail. And what would you what would you do with a country like I mean? Um, um, I was talking to John Davenport the other day uh, on another reboot uh, a dialogue, and um, uh, we were talking about about India and, of course, also countries like Brazil. Um, and um, that he he reckons that they should be part of a kind of a globalizing democracy alliance, maybe a D10 plus or some kind of other uh, uh, sort of grouping that that would try to defend and and uh, stand for democracy in the world. But uh, of course, at the moment, um, India, in so many respects, is moving away from being a democracy. Um, and, and, and again, you know, uh, Brazil is going a similar direction. Um, I mean, you could argue that the US is moving away from it for the like, you know, I mean, you know, if you just look at the recent Supreme Court ruling on uh, on abortion and, and all the rest, you can you see a trend here, which is very worrying, which is like, you know, established democracies uh, in Europe, in, the, in, the, in, in North America, and of course, like others like India. And, and uh, uh, so democracy is quite a, a flexible, elastic term. Um, and, uh, and it's hard enough, like on a, on a local scale, to kind of insist on democratic principle and an inclusion and all the rest. At a global level, this gets even more difficult. What, what kind of mechanisms do you foresee? And how do you, I mean, for example, within the European context, 
uh, Poland, uh, uh, Poland and, and Hungary are clearly kind of undermining the rule of law and developing anti-democratic uh, policies. And the European Commission is now actually penalizing, is withholding funds uh, from uh, from Poland and Hungary because of their kind of their kind of anti-democratic uh, development. Uh, how would you like at, at a global level, you know, would that be a way of kind of making sure that we stay democratic or could countries like India or Brazil or a future US simply derail this and that it would become indeed that tyranny that we all don't want? Well, first of all, you know, the US has to be central, I'm afraid, to this. Um, I think in spite of recent events, Democracy is very strong there. I, I have faith that um, they'll fix these problems. <laughs> Maybe we'll see the end of Donald Trump before too long, but we'll see. Um, India, yes. I should say John Davenport is a member of our coalition, so he's a, a major player and a very active um, member of our coalition. Um, you know, it's very early days for our, our um, ideal system. So to some extent, we just follow the EU's procedures. But um, ideally, I suppose um, we'd have these categories. Um, first of all, each member would have to apply to join. So they want to be a member of this democratic system. Uh, as I say, we probably have full members and associate members. And ideally, maybe um, the group could vote to demote a member to associate membership if they lapsed in their democracy, you know, if they, if they become less than fully free according to the criteria of Freedom House. So that would be one um, system, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it seems it seems to be quite. I mean, it, uh, it seems to be quite an issue at the moment where people are quite worried about fundamental democratic and political rights being eroded, um, and and so I think there's a kind of a natural hesitancy at the moment um, there. Another question, which is, I, I find it. I find this really fascinating. The, the work you do, the work people like uh, John do. Um, because it is at such a at such a high level, and most sort of mere models uh, feel that they can hardly imagine themselves as a member of a city council uh, or you know like some local representative body. Never mind uh, joining a national assembly like a national parliament, or indeed within Europe, you know the European Commission has this reputation of being quite remote and you know inaccessible to ordinary citizens. And indeed, in the US. Federal government is very often despised at the, at the state level by, by ordinary people. They feel that federal government is interfering in local affairs and all the rest. Um, so, um, but of course, there we're talking existing structures um, and, uh, and, 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 and there's kind of pathways into political, uh, um, you know, uh, political office, uh, public office. With what you have in mind as a civil society, as a think tank or like civil society network, um, you will rely on governments to actually do what you ask them to, because this is not something civil society, like individuals or individual citizens, even if they network together, can do. So how do you, you know, you know, how do you, how do you envisage this kind of moving forward? Uh, it, it, do you see yourself as a pressure group, or do you see yourself as a nucleus of this new uh, uh, community, or, or, or how, where do you come in as a uh, as a coalition? Um, uh, for a world security community, what, what exactly is it and, and how does it or can it support that process? 
Okay, well, let me tell you a bit of a story. So first of all, let me tell you how we were founded. Uh, basically, a group of us met at the um, New Shape Forum, um, an event of the Global Challenges Foundation in Stockholm in 2018. And there they were discussing exactly this problem, how to deal with global challenges, critical global challenges. And um, we formed a working group, which was um, supported by the foundation to um, uh, present at the Paris Peace Forum that year. Um, and we've taken on from there. So um, we're basically a, a transnational working group, um, about 40 members. And um, uh, we're pushing this idea, this campaign for world security. Now, um, why we call it a coalition? Well, we're copying the coalition for the ICC. So you're aware there's a world federalist movement, the WFM IGP, which was led as an executive director by Bill Pace for many years. And he um, formed this coalition for an ICC, which um, embraced many civil society organizations, including big ones like um, Amnesty International, um, et cetera. And basically they won their fight. So the ICC was eventually established. And that's been the greatest achievement so far of the World First Movement. Um, you know, it, it's only a step on the way, but at least something. Oh, it's, it's a great step. Yeah, yeah, no, it, totally. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Right. Yeah. So um, the movement has always concentrated on um, reforming the UN, which is the, you know, the world leading organization we have at the moment. But that's terribly difficult. Um, to alter the charter requires the agreement of two thirds of the member states and all five of the member of the permanent members, including two autocracies. And um, no major change to the charter has ever been achieved. Um, personally, I think the most likely step forward is the one advocated by Andreas Bummel and the um, Democracy Without Borders group who are campaigning for a United Nations Parliamentary Assembly, which would give some sort of democratic voice within the UN, which is actually entirely lacking at the moment. Anyway, that's by the way. So um, my idea is, um, as I say, democracy has to be a fundamental principle. So let's start with the democracies. Um, now, how are we going to do that? Um, how are we going to start? Well, I, th I think, again, we need to copy Europe. Namely, we need to start with a smaller group, um, such as indeed the D10 that uh, John discussed at the last meeting. Um, so that would involve the G7, basically, plus um, the members of the Quad in the Indo-Pacific. So it would then become a global organization of 10 or so members. Um, if they could agree to do this, um, they could appoint a commission to go away and draft a treaty, as um, Jean Monnet and company did, and um, 
put it up for approval. And then once they've established this community, they could invite other members. So the rest of the um, of NATO, for instance, dot, dot, dot. Um, so that's, as far as we can see, the most likely sort of uh, global strategy. As you say, we're just a small group of maybe 40 members. Um, and we swing virtually no weight in uh, global councils at the moment. But um, yes, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the Copenhagen Democracy Summit, um, convened by um, this Alliance of Democracies Foundation in Copenhagen. And um, it was a very exciting and inspiring event, I have to say. So we heard talks from um, um, Zelensky from Ukraine. We heard the Prime Minister of Lithuania, who gave a slashing speech. We heard from Barack Obama. We heard dot, dot, dot. Anyway, um, one of the main themes of that meeting was um, promoting democracy in individual nations, which are threatened or run by autocracies. So places like Venezuela or Cambodia or um, Cuba or Belarus or Russia itself. Um, so there was the first day was basically about that. And um, there was a major feature by Leopoldo Lopez, I think his name is, who's from Venezuela. And his main idea was um, all those national organizations should get together, form a network of um, pro-democracy organizations, which would uh, support each other. Uh, together, they would carry much more weight than one of them acting alone. They would be able to attract funding and support from other um, organizations. Um, that sounded to me like a terrific idea. Um, and hopefully that will go ahead. I haven't looked this up, but I think he called it Allied, A-L-L-I-E-D. Anyway, um, well, it struck me that just, that's just to uh, would that be a kind of a network organization uh, that the Coalition for World Security Community would join and then work alongside the others, or would you stay separate from this? Or how, what would be your relationship be with that new network you're just mentioning? Well, um, I'm just using that as an example. So that would be similar, if you like, to the Coalition for the ICC, which embraced many. Um, major civil society organizations. Um, no, I'm, I mean, I pat them on the back, good ideas, but that's not our major focus. So I'm saying, let's copy that and form a network of organizations aimed at uniting the democracies in an alliance or a community or what have you. Um, so two of the major ones were represented at the meeting namely the Alliance of Democracies Foundation itself in Europe and the Atlantic Council in the United States. And so, um, well, both at the summit and afterwards, I've been suggesting to them that they could set up a network, right? namely a coalition to unite the democracies. And we would be very happy to 
join them in that larger network um, and we help recruit other like-minded organizations. And so um, put them all together, I think we'd carry much more weight than one organization acting alone. We might even aim to get Amnesty International on board or other, you know, in terms of human rights. Um, anyway, uh, that I suppose is the current aim to some extent. So that would fit your idea of, um, you know, where civil society organizations fit in can help. That's right, uh, that's right. Uh, I mean, in terms of, you know, it, individual members of the public listening to us um, uh, um, and if they say, oh, well, that's uh, interesting, I, I would like to get involved. Would they, obviously they would not get involved with this network, but they would basically pick one of the organizations that are involved and would join those organizations. Is that, isn't that correct? Um, yes, I guess individuals would have to join up with um, the local organization or, or one of the others. Um, I mean, they're, they're basically all happy to um, accept individual members um, to listen to their you know, events, take part in their events, um, support their moves. So the more the merrier. Um, we'd be happy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's right. That's right. So um, um, what, what are the kind of the big uh, sort of, if you like, events for the remainder of this year? Big conferences, get togethers uh, of um, sort of global organizations like your own. Uh, I believe there may well be another democracy summit uh, in the autumn uh, organized by uh, Joe Biden or the, the, the US administration. Um, there may be others. What, what are the kind of the main events in your calendar uh, that are kind of like sort of scheduled for the next six to 12 months? Okay. Well, right now, um, there's a NATO summit going on. Um, and one possibly would have been that NATO uh, extended to become a global alliance. Um, and I believe that was actually suggested by Jens Stoltenberg, the um, Secretary General. But I guess it was knocked on the head last year by um, France and Germany, would you believe? Um, they might think again, um, given the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So nobody would have believed that um, last year, but, but it's happened. Um, but anyway, I think. NATO is a bit big. It'd be better to start with a small group, as I say, something like the D10. Um, but Joe Biden's Summit for Democracy is certainly proceeding. I, I think the second um, summit meeting is now postponed till next year, early next year. But um, preparations for it are going on. And we're actually involved in a working group, the Countering Authoritarianism Working Group. But again, I think it's too large. It's, it's um, hundred odd nations, some of which are of dubious democracy status. Um, and I think getting agreement from such a large group would be terribly difficult. Um, so again, I think a smaller group should lead the way, but, but we'll see. Um, we're, we're putting the proposal up to them and we'll see what they make of it. But as far as I can see, they're again more concerned with promoting democracy within individual nations rather than on the global global scale. Can you and, do, do you believe that you can really separate those two issues? I mean, take the US. 
Um, one of the reasons why the US could take, in my view, uh, could take such a global leadership role after the Second World War was because it was also seen by many, and there was always criticism of one or the other policy, this or the other, or one or the other war, there was Vietnam, there was this and the other. But on the whole, the US was sort of seen as a role model in democracy, the, the free world, as it used to be called. Um, and, and this gave it a moral high ground. It kind of basically gave it a, a mandate to defend and, uh, and, 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 and you know, other democracies and to build a sort of, if you like, a global alliance uh, in its own image. Um, you know, if not before, but then certainly during the Trump years, uh, and, and also what is now happening is sort of the, the sort of after, you know, the, uh, at the Supreme Court and so forth, a lot of people are questioning whether the US can still have that role model role. Uh, certainly in Europe, uh, European countries have become quite critical of the US and, and, and quite um, uh, worried about the direction the US is taking. So in a way, I mean, for, for example, John Davenport, he's talking about constitutional reform in the US as well. And, and, and so and my, my sense is, is, can you really separate it out? Can you, you know, like can countries that haven't got their own house in order really kind of raise to the challenge of creating a global democracy alliance? Or do you have to start at home first? Well, I, I guess it can go on in parallel. I think changing the constitution of the US is a non-starter for a start, but never mind, that's my, my opinion. Um, I mean, statistics show that democracy has gone backward around the world for the last 15 years or something. So autocracy has been rising, democracy has going, been going backward. Um, the trends in the US have been mimicked in other countries. So there's been polarization of the political landscape in all countries. So, um, the right versus the left, whatever. Um, so I don't think the US is alone there. Um, but still, they do have a strong and functioning democracy. Um, and to some extent, their foreign policy has always been rather bipartisan, right? Um, and that's a general trend also. The, the countries tend to unite on their foreign policy, even if well, they diverge. With the exception of Trump, I mean, you see now Joe Biden is trying to repair much of that foreign policy damage that Donald Trump caused. So I think that was a bit of a derision. This was a, a diversion of like a traditional U.S. Uh, uh, stance. But but yes, uh, that's just to sort of on the side. Yes, I, I mean Donald Trump is a <laughs> an outlier. I mean, personally, I think that shows that the um, Westminster model where you don't have a single president running the place is better than the um, presidential model, but, but that's, again, a private opinion. Um, hopefully, Trump is on the downslope. Um, the president inquiry in the um, um, Congress is going to do him serious damage, I'd say. So I think he's slowly fading from the landscape, but that's um, my hope. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Um, yes, I mean, he, that's right, he downgraded NATO, right? He, he did everything according to this TV show he did, um, what was it, Make, involving deals, and you're fired, <laughs> he'd like to say you're fired, um, <laughs> and he applied that method to governing the country, which is incredible. Yeah. 
Um, th th that's right. So, um, um, so, so, so you reckon you can, you seem to have quite a strong belief in the sort of the underlying strength of the traditional democracies. That's European democracies, North American democracies, Australian democracy. Um, and you also seem to have quite a lot of faith in Indian and Brazilian democracy. I'm just suggesting that. Um, um, and um, so, so you feel that they countries may go through their own internal problems and renewal processes, but that to you is quite separate from what you are proposing or what you, what you are saying. You said saying, well, yeah, all of that needs to go on, but building global alliances is a separate, it's a different kettle of fish. It's a, a wholly different domain. And the two things can go in parallel. And even if there are domestic problems piling up, for as long as it doesn't fundamentally damage the kind of the makeup, the constitution of a country, the two can stay separate and can progress at their own pace. Is, is, that, is, is that kind of correct? Is that what you, how you would see, do you, you see in some ways that the, the domestic agendas of nation states are almost a distraction in a way from what you want to achieve. Is that fair, a fair comment to make? Yes, it is. Um, I mean, India is a question. So India is a member of the Quad, right? But, um, you know, it, it's very concerned about China, but it has um, good relations with Russia. So it's refused to join the um, anti-Russian alliance, whatever. Um, and, it, you know, it's bought a lot of equipment from Russia. Um, it's still taking Russian exports and so on. So, um, and it is actually, it is, it is sanction breaking. You know, it is not only buying huge quantities of Russian oil, it's also selling it back into Europe, uh, which in another day and age would have been in itself sanctionable. I mean, you know, nobody really dares putting slapping sanctions now on India, but that really is what people would have to do if they really want to enforce the sanctions in Russia. We kind of don't want to expand the sanction regime. We kind of, you know, we're desperate to kind of not extend or broaden the conflict in that way. But really, if, if these sanctions are to have any teeth, that's what we would have to do. I mean, you know, imagine anybody would have traded with Iran after the US slapped sanctions on, on, on Iran, how the US would have come down on them, yeah? And what we see India doing at the moment Everybody is kind of turning a blind eye because nobody really wants to now start a quarrel with India uh, as well. It's it's a really difficult situation, and I think in India is ruthlessly exploiting it. Maybe, I mean, that's one of the parallels with the period before World War Two. So when Mussolini invaded Abyssinia, the League of Nations imposed sanctions, but they didn't work. They didn't stop. Mussolini, and um, I don't think sanctions are going to stop Russia either this time. Um, they can do damage, but they they won't stop Russia. Um, at the so moment, actually, more, at the moment, they do almost more damage to Europe and the US, actually to Europe more than the US, uh, than, than to Russia. They've backfired in a spectacular way. Yes, that's true. Um, but, I mean, they're more effective, I suppose, than the League of Nations was. The League of Nations actually collapsed, right? Um, after that sanctions incident, but anyway. Um, where were we? Yes, I, I mean, so I'm, I'm not sure India would be suitable as an, at least a starting member of the um, community, um, but it would probably be happy to join later because it's very concerned about China. I mean, it has actual 
conflict situations in the north with China, in Nepal, well, not Nepal, but dividing line. Well, I suppose um, the, the problem isn't so much India as such, it's really Modi, because Modi is like the sort of Hindu nationalism that he stands for, um, and that he that he promotes in a really kind of rather aggressive way, um, is, is quite anti-democratic, even if the kind of Indian constitution and, and kind of traditions, democratic traditions, hold the country together still quite quite well. It's a bit like, you know, when the US came under strain uh, under Trump, you wouldn't want to have had the US under Trump lead a democracy initiative. And in the same way, you wouldn't want India under Modi to lead a democracy initiative. It just wouldn't, it would really, would, would, would be a problem. Yes, um, that's right. I mean, India for a long time was a leader of the non-aligned movement, right? So didn't want to choose either the East or the West. Um, and of course, there's this problem with the Muslims. Um, they're being persecuted to some extent in India. That's right. So, so that's a problem. But um, Japan, um, Australia, South Korea, I guess, um, maybe New Zealand, not a big country, but a, a very thriving democracy, could all be um, initial members of the group. Anyway, yes, that's, that's absolutely. Going to be up to the uh, and, yes. and, 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 and certainly, I mean, I think the, the, the situation in Ukraine and Taiwan uh, do give impetus to this. So, I mean, when I'm kind of being kind of standoffish a little bit in our dialogue today, it's not that I don't believe in it. I totally do. It's just I, I do see all these hurdles and I am quite frustrated that I don't really see a smooth way through it. You know, I don't uh, I, I can see. Yes, it would be great to have this kind of you know, country, uh, this alliance, including kind of India, Brazil, the G7, the, this, that, uh, but I can see, I, I, you know, we're going through such a difficult time at the moment that um, it's as much about damage limitation and preparing the ground as it is about building something new. It's almost as if we have to, in a way, get through this current period before we can really seriously kind of, you know, do this. Um, and, and of course, the midterms are coming up in the US, you know, like the, the, the Democrats might be doing rather well, rather badly and, and they might lose control, you know, of the, you know, of, of Congress. So, you know, you know, Joe Biden might become quite a lame duck president in his, you know, in, in, for, for the last two years and he may well lose the next election and we might have another Trumpist figure there. So we are in a really difficult a difficult situation in a global context, there's a global recession on the rise and that always turns countries inwards. Um, so, I mean, from your kind of sort of high level perspective, um, where do you see the low hanging fruits? I mean, what, 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 what do you think your coalition uh, for world security community would want to achieve in the short term just to, to slowly edge forward in the right direction? What is the sort of the, the short-term low-hanging fruit objective uh, that, that you're aiming for? Okay, well, I think we need to work towards this um, D10 idea. So um, start with the G7, which is headed by Germany at the moment. Um, if we could conv convince Germany to put it on the agenda, I think this is, is the G7 summit coming up? No, or it's it's been it's happening right now, yeah. Yes, so uh, it's too late to get into the summit, but um, Germany is in charge of the G or leading the G7 for the rest of this year, right? So, um, 
what I'd like to see ideally is um, if we could persuade Germany to put on the agenda for a meeting later. And I, as I say, just appoint a commission to start drafting a, a possible treaty. Doesn't have to be adopted right away, but um, let's start thinking about the um, shape of this organization. Um, the US has its problems, but again, on foreign policy, it's, it's, um, we can look for a bipartisan agreement. So in fact, we need it. Um, for the US to agree to a new treaty, it needs two thirds of the Congress to vote in favor, right? Or the Senate, which the Senate. Um, well, that means both parties have to agree. Well, the Republicans have always been pretty strong on um, national security. So um, I don't see why they should object to this idea. Um, anyway. We have well, to the wait thing is, I, I'm not, I, I said this to John, um, it, it's quite interesting that Germany has such a great reputation abroad. Germany couldn't care less about human rights for anybody but Germans. I mean, Germany wanted to do business with China. It's the biggest export market. Germany was really dragging its feet on Russian gas and oil. Uh, and the moment there's a peace agreement signed, you know, Olaf Scholz will be back in, in, in Russia shaking hands with Putin and doing business in Russia. Germany is first and foremost interested about itself economically. There is, in, in my view, uh, there, there's two aspects to this. One is, is, is that, uh, I mean, Germany doesn't, it's a very, very young country. It didn't, we didn't really have a, a foreign policy uh, until unification because it was, it was occupied. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it hadn't regained its full sovereignty until reunification in 1990. It's a very young country. It doesn't have experience. It also, it really puts its own prosperity ahead of anything else, absolutely ahead of anything else, ahead of anybody else's suffering, ahead of European Union, ahead of absolutely everything. And there's a historic reason to this. There's a sort of a strong belief in Germany that uh, prosperity is closely linked to social order. Um, and if social order breaks down, there's this kind of almost irrational fear that we're back to a kind of fascist or identitarian or whatever kind of the, the thing that we all Germans try to leave behind. So this is in a sense we have to, and this is obviously the whole Marshall plan in a way was built on this kind of premise. Let's make Germany successful again so, so that it kind of basically... Um, and so there, there's a whole thing about a, a close link in people's minds between social order and prosperity. Um, and Olaf Scholz will make this very clear that he's not going to do anything that will kind of in any way sort of compromise or sacrifice uh, Germany's prosperity. I mean, I kind of wonder what that might make Americans think. I mean, this, this never seems to really reach the US. If it would, the US would instantly kind of turn down. Because, I mean, if you think about Ukraine, the amount of money the US has been transferring to Ukraine and compare that to what Europe is doing, it, it's, it's, just, it's just disproportionate. Uh, I don't, a much more interesting person, I think, to take this idea forward is Macron. Uh, in France, for a number of reasons. A, France has a capable foreign service. They are a military nation. They are a nuclear country. They, um, they are very much at the forefront of Europeanizing their U nuclear arsenal so that Europe can build up its defenses and the whole sort of integration of an integrated defense policy. France is very much at the center of that. Macron has basically lost his absolute maturity in the, the French parliament now. So he is quite diminished at a domestic level, but it doesn't really touch his, his foreign policy so much. 
So Macron would have the space and also the ambition and the expertise in a French foreign office to really take something like that forward. I think to, 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 to hope that Germany will do this is banking entirely on the wrong, on the wrong horse. Um, I, you know, I mean, Germany will talk nice, nice because they want to do business also with Australia. They want to do business with everybody. Hey, let's be nice to each other. We'll, you know, we'll do business. And they do this with kind of China at a level where I feel ashamed, but hey, it's German prosperity and that comes first. And, and so this idea and, 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 and the, the G7, um, well, Germany will agree to everything, anything that makes it richer, it richer, but it'll not agree to anything that will in any way have a negative impact on its banking or on its industrial base. Um, and, and this is, has been to the detriment of the EU in the past. I mean, we think about the financial crisis of 2007-8, the way Germany kind of really treated Greece, Spain, Italy. Um, and, um, and, and so moving forward and as a democracy alliance would mean that you have to place values alongside economic policy and germany don't think at an international level is anywhere near prepared to do this yeah they'll do talk the talk and every time a german politician goes to china says oh yeah and we will mention human rights uh, but, but that's as far as it goes you know they still they, they still build factories there they're still kind of it's the main export market for them and they will not do anything that will antagonize uh, china and it'll be very, very interesting to see if, if China was ever to attack Taiwan, what Germany's position would be on that. Uh, you know, unless they really have pulled out of China at that stage to such an extent that they don't rely on it economically anymore. But at the moment, a bit like with Russia, to this day, Germany has not sent a single heavy weapon to Ukraine, not a single one. It's absolutely shameful, disgraceful. Of course, there's all this talk about, you know, oh, yes, of course, we send weapons, but they're all like, like you know, handguns, helmets, uh, you know, things that really don't help in the current war against Russia. Germany does not want to really get into an argument with Russia. Germany wants to basically back to business as usual, wants this conflict, and they are convinced that Ukraine will lose. Um, so, in fact, you know, the U.S. was as well at the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, they kind of offered Zelensky to flee to get board a plane. And said, no, thank you. Send me, send me, send me weapons, send me bullets. Uh, he wanted to stay. And Germany has takes the very same position. There's a big discourse here in Germany. Says, well, I mean, let's be honest, you know, Ukraine can't win this. We just prolong the suffering. You know, this is the kind of discourse you get in Germany. Um, so relying on Germany for a democracy alliance that would place values along economic development is at the moment the political will simply isn't here i don't i don't see it okay well that's depressing but um i mean on the other hand germany has been the leader of the eu for yachts right so it's funded the eu it's but um, a lot of countries in the eu this has been one of the major reasons why the uk withdrew see europe as a german colony I mean, Germany, you know, Germany, Germany's monetary policy in the EU. I mean, there's issues around sort of, you know, socializing sovereign debt. Germany's absolutely against euro bonds. Germany's about anything that would raise the value of the euro, that would kind of stabilize and create. Germany needs, almost needs, as its economic model, needs kind of crisis on the margin of Europe. It needs a depressed Greece. It needs to depress Italy and depress Spain because it keeps the euro down and it keeps German exports competitive. You know, it's, 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 it's you know, and, and this thing about uh, the kind of the uh, 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 majority voting in, in, in Europe, it's not the case. I mean, it's, it's all based on unanimity. And you see this every time German economic interests are in any way um, 
threatened, Germany will always act in its own and not in European interest. At the moment, here's an example. Uh, at the moment, um, Germany wants to spend 100 billion, yes, set aside 100 billion, it's a huge amount, 100 billion euro on building up its defenses. This would be the death nail for a European defense strategy. Germany, if they really want to do something, they should be handing this 100 billion into a European pot. But Germany doesn't want to do that because then you'd have defense contractors in Italy, Spain, France, spending German money to basically build, build arms. They want to spend 100 billion on German industry to build its own uh, thing up. And if it goes, if it happens, um, it, it'll be, there'd be no, there'd be a minimal, it'll absolutely have a detrimental effect um, on, on, on the kind of the current, which is very strong at the moment, the building up European army. But if Germany goes, wants to go alone, and that's the signal it's sending it at the moment by saying, we're going to spend all this money on ourselves, um, that'd be detrimental. So I think Germany really needs to come a long way. I mean, Macron, when Macron kind of won his first term in office, he had a wonderful reform agenda for the EU. And Angela Merkel basically killed every single one of his proposals along the way. This is partially why he was kind of so diminished. Uh, like also, and, and what undermined his credibility, uh, you know, over, over the time, because he set himself up as a cosmopolitan, outward-looking European president, and this was absolutely batted back by by Angela Merkel. Every single one of his proposals were killed by Germany, um, and so it's it's it's. Um, I, I think what, Macron would be a great figure to take at sort of a D10 from a European context forward, and I think. Uh, Germany may follow in this, you know, Germany may, may, may kind of, but they will not, and they will, if, if they're forced to, they will, you know, as well, you know, but they will not voluntarily sacrifice economic growth or exports or anything uh, in the name of democracy or anything else. So that's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's, that's really where Germany seems to stand at the moment um, for all, all the talk. Can I, I just comment? So you, you may be right, and may, I, we approach Macron as well, but um, I mean, everybody after the fall of the Soviet Union was thinking, um, you know, liberal democracy had won the way, um, won the, the um, debate. Russia would become democratic and join the West, basically. And um, they rushed, as you say, to form economic relations and trade with Russia. And Angela Merkel, I suppose, was a large part of that. Um, so I don't think Germany was alone in those ideas, but it may be continued a bit longer than the others um, to cling to that idea. Um, so that's the way I see it. Um, anyway. But so by the way, Germany, Germany continued to increase, increase exports to Russia between January this year and May this year increase when Euro Europe as a whole decreased exports to Russia by 11%. Germany increased. They stepped in and took over some of those exports. Germany has massively benefited uh, the Russian economy uh, during that period. Um, really? So it, they have not pulled back voluntarily. Yes, they have kept in the sanction regime, but they have used all channels and all means and possibilities to export in other areas where the sanctions weren't, weren't, weren't actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, restricting trade. Um, and um, so, so Germ no, Germany is, is very much focused on, uh, on, on, on that. And it's, it's, it's totally misunderstood, I think, internationally. It's sort of seen as this benevolent, you know, social democratic country, you know, um, 
Yeah, that's very true if you're German. I mean, you know, even though the previous regimes in Germany, Germans, you know, were treated kind of well, if they were kind of, you know, I'm, I don't want to go there, but I'm just saying Germany um, is really kind of, I think, to its own, very good. But that's kind of where it tends to draw the line, certainly when it comes to human rights and when it comes to political or any other rights. Um, there's, there's very little comprehension why the German state. You get NGOs, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, reporters without borders. They're very big in Germany. They do loads of good work. You get all kind of amnesty has got a large base in Germany. Uh, Open Society Foundation is now based in, in, in Germany as well. You get many of these civil society organizations that are doing quite well and that receive also good funding, a lot of funding from Germany. It's no, no question about the German government, uh, the German state official policy. Uh, is, is, is very different in that respect. It's it's very much basically saying Germany first and always has. Okay, that's rather unfortunate, but anyway, um, maybe we can convince them to follow. By the way, have you programmed Andreas Bommel to give you a talk sometime? No, but that, who, tell me about him briefly. Well, he's um, devoted his whole life to this idea of reforming the UN, basically. And um, he's Again, proposing a modest start, a stage-by-stage -stage process. So he's saying, proposing a United Nations Parliamentary Assembly, which could be um, set up by a mere vote of the General Assembly and doesn't require any change of the Charter. So um, all he has to do is persuade a majority of the General Assembly to approve it. And initially, it would just have an advisory role, so we made up of parliamentarians from the member states, and it would um, give advisory opinions on various issues to the General Assembly. But the idea is that over time it would um, be given more powers and eventually become a, an actual parliament, a democratic voice within the UN. So that's the hope. Um, that, that, sounds, that, sounds, that sounds an interesting guy to talk to. but but. Um, uh, Chris, getting back to the, uh, the the coalition of World Security Committee, I'm, I'm quite conscious that I have been today um, blocking a little bit, and this is to do with my own frustrations, really much more than uh, with with what you guys are doing, because I think it's brilliant and it's really really important. Um, so, and, and I do think that the D10 idea is is a great one um, uh, as, as as a sort of a stepping stone uh, 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 thing, um, and 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 of course this kind of civil society network. Um, that in a way would mirror what the D10 does, but at a civil society level, um, and that the two could work together. Um, I think that is a very powerful potential. Um, and, and you say, and this is an interesting kind of thought that it mirrors in some ways, the kind of the campaigns that enabled the ICC uh, eventually to be formed and established. I think that's a, that's a very, very interesting idea. So um, I'm conscious of time. So um, looking ahead, over the next sort of six to 12 months, uh, uh, Chris, uh, what are the kind of the next sort of steps that you, uh, as the president of the Coalition for World Security Community, are hoping to take to, to, move, to move both your own movement, but also these other kind of initiatives forward? Yes. Well, as I say, I've, I've sent emails just in the last couple of weeks, basically, since the Copenhagen summit to the um, Atlantic Council and the Alliance Democracies Foundation, asking whether they would think this idea of a network, a coalition to unite the democracies is a good idea. Um, so I'm hoping to persuade them 
to lead the way. I mean, they have much more personnel resources, et cetera, than we do or um, virtually anybody else. Um, you know, the Atlantic Council basically was formed originally perhaps to um, put forward the ideas of Clarence Streit. So he proposed in 1939, I think, a, a union of the democracies. Um, in that case, to combat, would you believe, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. But after the war, he um, modified the proposal, first of all, to combat Soviet Russia, but then as a first step towards a world federation. So, um, you know, he, in the end, in the final stage of his ideas, he was quite close to what we're proposing now. And um, the Atlantic Council, Ash Jane and um, Matthew Kronig, and Jonas Perello Plesner, that's right, from the Copenhagen Foundation, have written a joint paper, which basically um, advocates very much what we're saying. Uh, that's brilliant. Yeah, so that's, that, there's a clear direction there then, yeah? Yes. So if we can persuade them to set up this network, then uh, I think they'd have a much more persuasive voice in the um, geopolitical councils of the world. Um, meanwhile, I'm proposing to try and persuade the Australian government, for instance, to support these ideas. We have a new Australian government. Yes, historically, um, yes. Very nice. Um, yes, we should send letters to Germany and um, um, etc. The UK, I think, would jump on board. Um, yeah, who knows? So, um, um, obviously, the new government in Australia um, will. I mean, you know, I mean, Australia had a very, a rather dismal record on climate, for example, under the previous government. And I, so, I mean, this is, of, of course, one area where the new government can really make good for some of the some of the errors and some of the uh, some of the policies of the previous government. Um, <clears throat> do you do you see the new government helpful in in ways that would benefit uh, the uh, the coalition for a world security community? Do you see a direct kind of um, in their foreign policy? Well. well uh, it remains to be seen to some extent. I mean, I, I'm very glad um, the new Labour government has come in. They're certainly going to do, be much more active on climate change, which is, you know, way past time here. Um, on foreign affairs, well, as I say, Australia has a pretty bipartisan view. So um, both sides of politics have basically supported each other in terms of um, the Australian attitude. But um, the Labour uh, Foreign Minister and Defence Ministers have in the past um, been, well, trying to accommodate China, trying to maintain good relations with China. Um, but on the other hand, they've, you know, we're, we're being boycotted by China because of our tough attitudes. Well, the new government has maintained those tough attitudes and said it will not give in to the 14-point demands or whatever of China. Um, we've got a rock-solid alliance with the United States. So if um, war broke out over, over Taiwan, we'd be involved. Not that we could help a great deal at present. Um, 
and and we're worried we're worried about that. And also, you may have seen recently, um, China's foreign minister has been visiting the Pacific Islands, um, Vanuatu and Solomon Islands, and so on, and forming well proposing uh, pacts which haven't yet been approved by the um, uh, the Pacific Islands. So that's been a major concern for Australia and New Zealand. Um, this is off the track, but um, uh, I and others have been proposing for some time that the Pacific Islands Forum should be again upgraded to a community which could um, formulate a common security policy for the whole group. And that would be a great step forward in fending off, if you like, the um, Chinese um, strategy in the Pacific. Um, Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're spending a lot of money on development of various sorts, which is fine, except for the this debt trust. So, so they demand repayment of all these funds and um, the countries find it difficult to repay and find themselves basically trapped. Um, so they need to get off that course. Um, development funds on their own would be a great idea, yeah. Um, just, one, just one last question there uh, in terms of a sort of a strategy. Um, we both seem to be making this implicit assumption that for a sort of a coalition uh, of nations to form um, both the US um, and Europe uh, or particular countries within Europe are, are, are critically important for this to for this to take off. Um, This is probably the case. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not questioning that. But I just, as as a thought experiment, I wonder. Well, first of all, the question: Why is that? Is that is that because pride and whatever kind of a sense of superiority would prevent them from joining later? That they would sort of say, "Oh, well, it's not our initiative." That if they're not in it from the beginning, or or are there other reasons why you think that they have to essentially be seen as the leaders of this? Because you could equally take another approach. I mean, countries like, for example, like New Zealand, uh, very small, not very powerful, but really decent countries. And, and, you know, in so many ways, role models for what countries should be. Um, you know, if, 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 if so, if you get together like a small band of countries like that, really you take the best in best of breed, the kind of really countries that are, you know, sorted out. And you start there and you build it up, slow, if you like, from the ground up. I know this probably wouldn't work, but I'm, just as a thought experiment, why is this not being even con contemplated? Well, I mean, the idea is if you're going to um, fend off World War III, basically, if you're going to deter China, for instance, from um, invading Taiwan, I mean, it's building up its forces as fast as it can go. It's building airfields opposite Taiwan. It's obviously planning to go as soon as possible, maybe within three years, according to some experts, um, if you like to take the US by surprise and its allies. So to deter them, <coughs> we need as powerful a, um, a coalition or whatever um, as possible. So as I say, if you include North America, Europe, and uh, the Indo-Pacific, The major nations there, as I say, would involve half the world's GDP, two-thirds of the world's military expenditure. 
it would basically be unchallengeable. And so that would, in other words, that would form a credible deterrent and would dissuade China, say, from attacking across that state. So that's the aim. We don't want war to break out. We want to prevent it. And we have to form uh, as powerful an alliance as we can. Okay, so the very last question leading on from that, I totally, that's a very tangible objective and I can totally, you know, uh, uh, sh share that, you know, that that's, uh, but, but if this is the, if this is the absolute objective here, why bother about democracy? I mean, in other words, um, if it is a question about building an alliance against aggression, um, I mean, for example, uh, you know, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor at the G7, that's been on, I think it's ending today or has ended yesterday uh, at Schloss Elmau here in, 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 in Germany, uh, the, the big G7 gathering. Um, in his speech, he basically said, oh, we need to get away from this, oh, from this old Cold War thinking. We need to break away from this East-West thinking. Uh, and Germany wants to lead away basically where countries that are abiding by international law and the rule of law would be teaming together against countries who don't. But when you have that as your principle, and it just shows how inexperienced and all of Scholz really is when it comes to foreign policy or any of that, then the US has broken international law. law I had an illegal war, uh, war in Iraq. Uh, the UK is doing it right now with an overall protocol. Um, I, I don't know about Australia, but I mean, like there's so many countries. In fact, there isn't a single industrialized country uh, that hasn't kind of disregarded. You could go on with Israel. You could go on with this, with that, the other. There's so many countries who have. So if, if you basically say we only bring together countries who haven't broken international law, which is kind of Olaf Scholz's kind of vision now, um, then you may even bring in China, actually, because I'm not sure whether they actually have broken international law so far. Um, and it's a, it's a totally different axis that Olaf Scholz has in mind, the, the law-abiding nations versus the kind of the, the law-breaking nations. Uh, this is different from the democracies versus the autocracies. It's a totally different axis. But of course, it's very clear why he wants it, because you know, the rule of law is fundamental for Germany's pursuit of profit because you need the supremacy of contract law to enforce your economic interests. And this is why law is so fundamental to Germany uh, and not democracy, you know, but you know, that's just on, on, on its side. But um, so, so, so the, if, if, it's, if it's about preventing a war, why not run with Olaf Scholz's definition and say, forget about democracy, but really matters is rule of law. It doesn't matter whether we're not talking human rights here. We're talking international law, and we're talking, you know, like rule of law nationally. So, I mean, even a country like Russia, okay, with Ukraine, it broke international law. It's it's in a war of aggression, but no more so than Iraq, as far as you, you, the U.S. was concerned. Or in so it becomes really quite problematic. Um, so, taking your idea, uh, you know, if it's about making sure that if China attacks Taiwan or now also with Ukraine, we need to be an, build an alliance that this kind of geopolitical aggression on that scale uh, can no longer happen that world wars are being prevented. Democracy may or may not have to be a part of this. I mean, I think it should be. I totally, you know, don't get me wrong, but that's just as a thought experiment. Why are you insisting on democracy there if the objective really is about stopping China from attacking Taiwan? Okay. I guess that's possible. Um, I haven't seen the statement, but um, I mean, I'm just going, I'm a theorist, right? I'm a theoretical physicist. Um, in theory, democracy, as I've said, is going to be a necessary fundamental principle of any world federation. So I'm proposing that. And um, this East-West divide was breaking down, as we said, 
post-Soviet Union collapse. But it's been reinstated by Russia. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine has absolutely violated any international law and violated the peace of Europe, right? Um, so Europe is outraged, basically. Um, so it's Russia and its ally, if you like, China. So they formed an axis like um, Italy and Germany did before World War II. That's right. Um, so they've done it themselves. Um, and, you know, the invasion of Ukraine has smashed every international agreement um, and law. Um, I mean, I, I agree, Iraq was basically a mistake, George W. Bush and so on. And no country is absolutely free of blame. We, we right. all make mistakes. Um, but the democracies are generally much more peaceful. You can statistically verify this. And they almost never make war against each other. Um, if we want a peaceful world, we need democracy. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm totally with you on the democracy thing. I'm just saying if, um, you know, and there's, but the, you see, the, for me, there's two separate objectives here. There is a kind of democratizing a world for a long-term objective of a more peaceful, a more just, a more sustainable world. It's absolutely clear. It would be horrific to have a world government that isn't democratic. So we're absolutely on the same uh, sheet here. But this is, a, this is a sort of a set of objectives that leads to a democratic world in the future. There is a much shorter term. You're talking about a time frame of three years here where China might attack you know, Taiwan. And that's on a different timeline. And it has a different set of objectives attached to that, which may or may not have to do with democracy. Um, and so the question to me is, is whether the two have to be the same thing. I think what you're sort of saying is strategically it makes sense to bring them together because it gives impetus to a kind of a international body that would coordinate peacekeeping and, 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 and security in a democratic way. I can totally see the rationale and the, the logic, the kind of the street strategic thinking behind that. Um, but um, but of course, in traditional kind of military thinking, what you may want to say is, well, actually, we need to beef up NATO so that NATO is ready when China attacks Taiwan. You know, that would be a very pragmatic short term. We have three years to basically kind of build our infrastructure, because as you say, China is building its infrastructure as we speak. And if we don't kind of catch up with this and if we don't keep an eye on this, then we will be at a significant disadvantage when they do attack Taiwan. So so that's, you know, that's basically for me, they're kind of this short term three to five year window where Taiwan might be threatened by China. And there is a sort of a, a five to 50 year kind of agenda, which is a very different timeline, which is about kind of creating a, a, a different kind of world. Do you think that these two necessarily need to be brought into a single framework or can you see how they could possibly be dealt with separately? Well, you know, um, I was, was um, thinking about this community. I, I wrote a book 20 years ago where we talked, I talked about this idea of a community of democracy. So I've always thought that, but it, it might be possible to start with a different group. I mean, which countries would he propose? Which countries would you propose? Well, this is, this is what, what kind of got this, me thinking on this was that I said, if my objective was to democratize the world and to build a, a, a government, one option would be the start with the New Zealands of this world and to basically take countries that are really democracies in the best sense. 
um, and to build it slowly out from there. And over the next 50 years, we might end up having something. And at some point, larger countries might join and, and, and so on and so forth. It might become a matter of prestige to be part of this because you want to be as good a democracy as others. But of course, that would not be a military approach, would it? Because you would, for a long time, you would be actually not very strong in terms of militarily or not even economically. You'd be you'd be sort of just a kind of an idealist experiment in a way. But in terms of building that world, that could be a possibility. Whereas if if the objective is to basically be ready for a war in three years' time, then that's a very very different timeline. And one would want this to be as democratic as it can be. You know, there's no question about that. Uh, but it may not be the primary concern. The primary concern might be the defense of Taiwan, defense of Australia, uh, and the prevention of, uh, you know, of, of a third world war. Um, and uh, and so for me, the two are not necessarily, um, I, I don't I don't know the answer. I'm just saying, you know, it's like, in, in a way for me, these are two very viable concerns. Um, and I can totally see the idea of why bringing them together might actually accelerate the formation of a world body because the ends must meet you know there's a kind of there's a um there's a, a, a sort of a kind of a, a dynamic here there's a sort of a, a, a and that obviously you want to piggyback on that and you want to use that and i think that's right that's what we have to do um but it's it's that and so but it also means that because the primary the driver behind that dynamic is fear of war in taiwan we may have to compromise along the way because that primary objective to pre prevent the war must in some ways be more important or you know you know uh, like uh, 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 prioritized uh, over the secondary objective of it becoming democratic. I don't know in a way that the two are not necessarily always in lockstep. Um, well, maybe not. I, I think um, you know an alliance basically um, would be a major step forward too. So an alliance which yeah doesn't necessarily, I mean, which are the non-democratic countries which you think we might attract, put it like that, would be useful to have? India, Brazil, ah. um, South Africa, um, Indonesia. Um, well, Indonesia's fairly democratic, I think. Um, yeah, but you know, I mean, this is exactly the thing, you know, uh, Philippines. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is, one would hope to attract all these at a later stage. I, I suppose that's the idea. Um, uh, on their own, without the G7, for instance, you wouldn't have the impressive um, array that would deter former credible deterrent. So we basically need the G7. We need the G7 and ideally bump it up to a G10. Um, yeah. And as you said, if, if the Atlantic Council would sort of kind of go into partnership with the, uh, the Foundation of uh, uh, Democracy, what, what do you call it, Foundation of Democracies? Uh, Alliance of Democracies Foundation. Alliance of Democracies Foundation, if the two of them would um, uh, team together and a larger network would build around that, of course, um, the Coalition for a World Security Committee would be one of those members then as well and would have a seat at the table, which would be brilliant. Um, I think that's I think that's a really interesting interesting model and and of course as you said in parallel NATO might be bumped up and might develop further as well to, to prevent in the short term whatever conflicts. So what kind of um, when do you hear hope to hear back from the Atlantic Council and the uh, and and the foundation? 
Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm waiting. They may ignore me entirely. Who knows? But um, I'm hoping for a response. So um, I can let you know if you like. Um, oh, it would be very nice. And presumably, you presumably you do have. I know that you know people at the Atlantic Council personally. So, so you presumably have written to those people, and they. So your name will be. You, you won't be. It won't be a cold call. They know who's writing to them, and it would be quite un, unfriendly if they weren't responding at least to say thanks, thanks, Chris, but no thanks. I think that's the very least you would get, um, given your relationship with them, which is a very positive and a very strong one. Um, so, but yeah, let's let's hope let's hope that this is. This moves forward. Um, what kind of did you kind of indicate a sort of a, a wish for a time frame on this when you talk to them, or what is your sense if they were to kind of go for this? How how quickly could something mm -hmm. like that happen? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't see why they shouldn't be able to set it up within months, but but they they have to tell me. Yes. So the Copenhagen summit was very good. I met a number of these people face to face, and um, we generally did. I talked to um, Derek Mitchell of the National Democratic Institute, uh, which is another powerful civil society organization with US government support. Um, I just said a few words with him at the summit. Uh, I followed up with an email, and in the email, he found it sounded much more doubtful. Um, he said, um, probably the US wouldn't agree, so here's another problem. Um, they won't agree to any restriction of their sovereignty, um, which is you know, the first hurdle anybody has to um, surmount in um, setting up a federation or you know, any yeah. sort of um, political organization. Um, and he may be right, so he may trip over that hurdle right away, I don't know. But, um, you know, I, as I say, both sides are, bipartisan in security terms, basically. Um, I hope he's wrong. Um, the the well, US in a community would have the largest say, but not a dominant say. So they would be the major partner in the alliance, but not, not a dominant partner in the community. Well, isn't this, um, this, isn't this why the, the Security Council was sort of established in the first place as well, so that these grand nations would have a veto uh, on, on issues that infringe on their kind of sovereignty uh, in, in any way. Um, exactly. So that's why it becomes completely inoperative. So it, it's had no influence on the Vietnam War because, um, you know, it involved the major powers, um, dot, dot, dot. And it's having no, inf no reason, real influence on the Ukrainian war because members of the Security Council are involved on both sides. So. Um, the one exception was the Korean War, right? So the Security Council authorized the US to intervene in the Korean War. And that was because the Soviet Union made a mistake and boycotted the meeting, meeting of the Security Council rather than attending it and vetoing it. So that was the only time the UN actually authorized, if you like, intervention, intervention in a war involving the um, permanent members. So that's just a major illustration of why the UN is ineffective on, on these matters. That, that's right. But maybe, maybe like, I mean, the same, of course, goes for the EU. Again, the principle of unanimity is killing the EU at the moment, because like any country can instantly at any point can sort of say, no, and then decisions just don't, aren't taken forward. So, um, so the qualified majority voting is something people are putting in place 
pushing very strongly at the moment for sort of a, a constitutional reform in Europe, that this becomes possible. And right. for as long as unanimity remains as a principle, it, it remains a confederation rather than, you know, like a, a you know, a, a federation. Um, and and that's, that's, of course, a huge problem for it to go forward. But in a way, I mean, there are examples, of course, in the way the US formed, and, you know, like in, in its sort of constitutional history, the U, EU is going through that process. Um, your colleague who is kind of trying to reform the UN is kind of trying to find a back route to, to kind of move beyond that obstacle. And I think um, any new structure that would be set up probably would again have to start making that concession initially just to get the people on, around the table. And then, of course, I would have to find in the process over time, I would have to find ways of overcoming that. I, I think if one would kind of um, make that a kind of a deal breaker from the start, you're absolutely right, then probably it would never happen. But I think initially you would have to give every one of those countries a veto, other than they would never allow themselves to be uh, involved in it. Well, yes, except for the alliance. So they would have to agree to an Article 5, if you like. An attack on one is an attack on all, and they have to resist it. For other decisions, what to do about climate change, what, you know, other problems, yes. Um, um, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's the, the kind of the, 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 the but it, the, the, there's a precedent with NATO, and 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 that obviously it, it's very much at the heart of it. That's that's why Article Five is is accepted because with, without that, there would be no NATO. I mean, you know, you know, um, really, that's that's been really really interesting, um, uh, Chris. I, I hope me being sort of a kind of a bit standoffish or. In, in, didn't get that wrong. I really do think it's really amazing what you do, really important to move forward with it. Uh, I'll be following very, very closely. And yes, do please keep me in the loop uh, what comes back from the Atlantic Council and from the, uh, the, the foundation to sort of see whether there's something. And, and of course, in an ideal world, uh, if, if we maybe have another chat in six, seven months time coming up to Christmas, maybe by that stage, um, we have a clearer picture of, you know, you know where they stand and whether this is a possible route. Uh, I mean, of course, part of Reboot 2030 is, is that, I mean, if you listen to the other interviews we're doing, the other kind of dialogues we're doing, every single or the vast majority of these projects are now impossible to realize. And this is why we do Reboot. I mean, if it was so easy, these are very bright people doing, trying to do impossible things at a time when really it is very important to do these things. And there is a, there, there's, it's not, nobody would expect a, a coalition of a world security community to emerge within six or 12 months time. This is a 10 year project in, you know, in, in, in a way. Uh, so I'm totally, you know, and even if there's short initial kind of like movements, it's gonna be two step forwards and one step back. And it's gonna be like that a bumpy road uh, for some time to come. But it's really amazing that you do this and uh, that, that, that you guys exist. So I'd like to catch up with you in six months time if, you, if you're up for it. Uh, and hopefully by that stage, we have a clearer picture uh, of where everybody stands. We'll also kind of know, you know, Germany's presidency of the G7, how that worked out. I, as I said, I don't hold out too much hope that they'll be pushing anything else but economic agendas, but, you know, we shall see. Um, and, um, and hopefully we will have a better sense of where things are going. Um, and, and can have a, a good conversation then uh, about, about that. Right. Well, well, thanks, Nico. Um, it's very interesting to have this conversation and very good to have your um, objections, if you like. So, yes, it, um, it's very good to have your ideas and have to um, try and answer them. 
Um, who knows? Yeah. Let's see in six, eight months. That'd be good. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, we're not beyond Corona yet, so do stay healthy. Uh, we just had our fourth, uh, our, our second booster, uh, our fourth shot. Um, I don't know, what, what's the situation in, in Australia? Are you are you kind of boosted? Are you getting boosters in Australia as well? Or what's the, the story there? Yes, we've all, all had two shots plus a booster. They're talking about a fourth one, whether it's really necessary or not. My brother-in-law is in intensive care at the moment with COVID. So it, we're all in the same boat as regards this, but yeah. Um, so we all need to stay healthy where we can. We need to stay healthy, stay careful, because we have important yeah. work to do. And obviously we can only do it for as long as we kind of have the strength to do it. Um, Chris, thank you very, very much. It's been such a great pleasure to see you again in good health. Um, and I look forward to continuing that conversation in the future. Thanks, Nico. Right. Thank you very See much. You See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.